Thank you very much, Dan, for leading us in prayer and scripture reading. Um, if you've uh, grown up in the church, uh, been part of the church for a long time, it's very easy to miss how extreme the Sermon on the Mount actually is. We're in a series, for those of you who are visiting with us, we're in a series on the Sermon on the Mount, um, and we're, we're just starting to get to the heart of the sermon now. And like I said, if you grew up in church, it's, it's really easy to miss how extreme the Sermon on the Mount is. You know, you go to Sunday school or something like Grace Kids, and maybe you got a coloring sheet with your teacher tells you a little bit about the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus came and he taught the people, and you get this coloring sheet with Jesus. Uh, maybe he's sitting on a log or something, and all the people are nicely uh, set around him, and they all have got, like, smiles on their faces because Jesus is obviously so interesting and intriguing, a, a preacher that everybody is just wrapped with attention, and everything he says, everybody loves, so that's why they've all got big smiles on their faces because it's just the best thing that they've ever heard. And so you don't realize that, that the things that, that Jesus says, how, how actually penetrating they are. So you read that, oh yeah, you know, I'm not supposed to hate other people. I'm not going to do that. I'll keep away from that. Oh yeah, lust, that's a, that's a bad one too. So I will make sure that I avoid lusting. I'll stay away from that kind of stuff. Um, I know that I'm not really supposed to worry, so I'll try really hard not to worry because Jesus says, hey, don't worry. Okay, I'll try not to worry. Jesus told me to do that. And of course, I should, I should build my house, my life on the foundation that is Jesus. Okay, I'll try to remember to do that. Maybe I'll go to church and maybe I'll do some devotions or be part of a Bible study or something so that I've got a little bit of that Jesus stuff in my life as well. And we fail to understand just how penetrating the Sermon on the Mount is until we come across and we stop and think about verses like verse 20 where Jesus says, I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now... We like to slag the Pharisees, right? We read about them. They're the bad guys. They're the villains in the story. And that's true. They are the villains in the story. And Jesus is always up against the Pharisees and come in, in kind of uh, uh, verbal combat with the Pharisees whenever they have engagement with one another. But you hear, you see, the reason the Pharisees are the villains is actually not because they're so bad. It's because they're so good. The Pharisees are the super holy people, you know, the people who take God's law seriously, the people who don't just sit around and, and listen to the, the, the laws and go, yeah, 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 I know I'm supposed to hate, uh, not hate people and I'm supposed to not lust. And so they actually think about it and they go, I'm going to actually do what I have to do to actually keep this law. That's what they were like. They're, they're kind of like, they're kind of like today. They're the, no, what am I trying to say? They're the super holy people. Everybody else doesn't like them because they're the super holy people. You know how super holy people can be annoying? Like today, it's like Francis Chan. Anybody here know Francis Chan, who Francis Chan is? Okay, he's a great preacher. But when you listen to him speak, you can, he just exudes holiness. It's very irritating for people like me. Because when you hear him speak and you hear him talk and you hear him talk about how much he just loves God 
and how much he wants to just serve Jesus. And this guy has like, I think he's tithed 90% of his income and he's, you know, he started this big church and then he left it to start some house church movement in a third world country. It's just like, he's so good and holy all the time. And people don't like that. People like me who know that they're not as holy as Francis Chan. I'm sure Tim Keller is a lot more holy than me too, but I, for some reason I can handle him because maybe he's not as, as openly passionate about his holiness as, as Francis Chan is. Anyway, what I want to do is I want to compare myself to the holiness of other people in a way where I'm the more holy one, not them. And then you run into a guy like Chan or, or maybe you've heard of David Platt. He's another one that irritates me by his holiness. Uh, and Keller maybe, Sinclair Ferguson, if you're a little older, you'll remember him. And you, you connect yourself or you compare yourself to them and you think, man, I stink. And Jesus is saying, you know what? You need to be more holy than Chan, than Ferguson, than Keller, than all these guys put together. And then in verses 21 and following, Jesus starts to unpack what that looks like. And when you read it, that's when you should be thinking to yourself, my goodness, this is impossible. Jesus says, like, seriously, I'm supposed to, when someone is hateful toward me and does evil toward me, I'm not supposed to do evil back. I'm supposed to just turn the other cheek. And, and in fact, I'm supposed to be concerned about their well-being, even in the midst of the evil that they are perpetuating against me. Now, you and I, we say, yeah, you know, when someone, you know, slags you on Facebook or Instagram or ghosts you or something. You don't, you don't pull back. You're supposed to take that and, and, and you're supposed to continue to love them and you say, this is pretty tough. But what if you're a persecuted minority in a country around the world where, where your enemies are not just ghosting you or, or, or bad-mouthing you on social media. They're actually like burning your house down. Like the Karen Christians from Burma, or what was known as Myanmar, or is now known as Myanmar, who have to run into the jungle and escape to Thailand and live for the next however many years in a refugee camp. They're supposed to pray for those who are persecuting. They're supposed to not return evil for evil, but they're supposed to return evil for good. And when you read this, you, you, you find yourself, if you really listen to the Sermon on the Mount, the problem is, is that you find it both kind of attractive, but also repulsive. It's attractive because you, you read it and you think, yeah, you know, like, this is how I should be. This is how everybody should be. This is how the world should be. Imagine if everybody in the world lived, ouch, lived, According to the Sermon on the Mount. What would this world be like? It would be amazing. It would be love. It would be, it would be, it would be beyond our wildest dreams. But then you also read it and you go, this is utterly unrealistic. Come on, guys. You're really expected to not look at a really good-looking, attractive woman, not lustfully. And if you do, bam. You've committed sin, sexual immorality in your heart. Like, you're dead in the water before you even start. And so on the one hand, you go, man, this, 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 this gospel living of the Sermon on the Mount, I love it and it's awesome. But on the other hand, it drives me nuts. Now, I just want to warn you that if you are not feeling this tension 
as we go through the Sermon on the Mount together, because we're starting to get into the laws themselves very soon, if you're not feeling this tension, then you're not reading it carefully. You're not listening to what it has to say. This should make, I don't care if you're a Christian or a non-Christian, that's kind of irrelevant to the issue. This sermon should amaze you and astound you in its, in its picture of humanity because remember what the Sermon on the Mount is is basically a picture of the kingdom of God. This is what the kingdom of God would look like if all of us would live according to the kingdom of God. And so it's amazing, but on the other hand, it's just so utterly infuriating and guilt-inducing. And you should feel that tension. I just want you to know that before we get started. Because you see, look at verse 48. This is the end of chapter 5, the section that we're moving into right now. And look what Jesus says in verse 48. He says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's the standard. That's the goal. That's the standard that Jesus has set for us. Ask yourself this question. How good do you have to be to get into heaven? That's the question. And most of us say, well, you need to be good enough. We may not say that to people like with our mouths, but in our heads we're thinking, well, I need to be good enough. I need to be better than, and then you pick that person who's worse than you, so that you can comfort yourself with the idea that you're being somewhat good enough to make it into the kingdom of heaven, to inherit this kingdom of God. And here's what Jesus says, sorry, you need to be perfect. You need to be like my heavenly Father. That's who you need to compare yourself to. Here's the standard of getting into the kingdom of heaven, guys. The standard is God himself, who is perfectly holy, perfectly good, perfectly righteous, per perfectly moral. He's absolutely perfect in every way. That's the standard that God, that Jesus sets before us in terms of how we can enter into the kingdom of heaven. God does not grade on a curve. I see a lot of university students here, so I'm glad I've got this illustration in my pocket. You know what it means to grade on a curve? Teacher has a test, and he's got, let's say, 20 students or whatever, and he wants to make sure that there's like five A's and 10 B's and five C's. Just checking my math. Yep. And so what does he do? He compares the students to one another and he grades on a curve and he, he adds a certain number of points or percentages to adjust the grades so that he gets exactly what he wants. But God doesn't work that way. God doesn't compare us to one another. God says, I am the standard and this is the terror of the servant on the mount. It devastates our hearts. It, it, it exposes us and it makes us want to live this way but it also makes us feel like, we can't live this way because we know we fall short at every juncture, at every law. So, with that very positive introduction, let's look at this passage that we're facing this morning, these verses in 17 through 20 where, where Jesus is addressing God's law. So, in the Beatitudes, he, talk, he show, talked about Christian character, salt and light, he talked about Christian influence. Now he's talking about Christian righteousness. And Jesus, he goes back, when he talks about the law, he goes back to the Old Testament. That's the, the law and the prophets that he's talking about. 
And we're going to see three things. We're going to see the permanence of the law. We're going to see that all of the law matters. And we're going to see that all of the law is about Jesus. Those are the three things. So let's have a look. Jesus says in verses 17 and 18, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. What is Jesus saying about the Old Testament law? He's saying that it stands and all of it stands. So he's saying all the commands, all the rules, all the prophecies, all the promises, everything contained in it, it will not pass away. If you've ever been to the Rocky Mountains or to one of these big mountain ranges that exists in the world somewhere, you look at these mountains, you say they're immovable. They're permanent. If anything in this world is going to stand the test of time and be there a thousand years from now, it's, it's these mountains. And what Jesus is saying is mountains will pass away. Stars will pass away. Galaxies will disappear. Our sun will burn out eventually. Heaven and earth will disappear, but not God's word. God's word, he says, is more permanent than the universe. Why is that? Well, amazingly enough, think about this. God's word exists before the universe did. How did God create? God created with his word, right? You go back to Genesis 1 and it says, God spoke and it was. Everything that exists is, it exists because God's word spoke it into existence. So Isaiah 40 verse 8 says, The grass fades and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. The word is eternal because it's from God. It's existed before anything else in existence existed. Now I'm going to apply this for in a minute, but I'm going to go to point two very quickly first. Point two is this. Yes, the Bible is, all per is permanent, and that means, therefore, that all of it matters. You notice that Jesus says in, in verse 18, he says, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear. What does Jesus mean by that? Well, some of you maybe know this. Um, the smallest letter in the Hebrew language is a yod, which basically looks like an apostrophe. That's all it is. It's a little tick. Okay? The least stroke of a pen. How, does he, how do you understand that? Well, you sermon breakout kids. You'll like this, I think. Draw a lowercase c. Oh, look at these good students here doing it. Yes. Draw that lowercase c. Now draw a lowercase e. They look almost exactly the same, except for that one little line. That distinguishes a C from an E. That's what Jesus is referring to. That's what he's getting at when he's talking about this least stroke of a pen. What Jesus is saying is, is that none of this will pass away. Not one little tiny bit of God's word is going to pass away. It is all going to come true. It will, that's what it means when it says it will all be accomplished. In other words, every part of the Bible is true. It is reliable. Every single part of the Bible. 
Now, it's not like other words that we hear. If you notice that in the last five years or so, we have had a tremendous erosion of trust and and reliability in, in the media. People don't trust the mainstream media. I hear it all the time. Oh, I don't watch the CBC, that liberal rag. Okay. Oh, I don't watch Fox News because it's just all a bunch of right-wing fanatics. I don't know, okay, whatever. Well, you can't trust the Globe and Mail. You can't trust the National Post. I watch Rebel News. Why? Because everybody is saying, I'm not getting the truth. I'm not getting the real deal from the journalists. They all have, a, have an agenda behind it. And, and it's not just them, politicians, people have always had a hard time politici- uh, trusting politicians, but more and more people feel like they can't trust their politicians, that there's some sort of backdoor dealings going on behind every piece of legislation that ever comes out, and it's always meant to, to, uh, to uh, better that politician's lives and, and, and make things worse for their enemies. Even doctors, I've spoken to, to doctors, we have a doctor in our, in our own church, people, people uh, don't trust the medical community the way they used to. They don't trust the academy. You can't go to that university because you'll become woke, whatever that means. Or don't go to that university because all they do is, is hammer on, you know, fundamentalist Christian teachings. You can't even trust TikTok, guys. And I'm not talking about, like, the people who are, who are, you know, selling the latest superfood or detoxifying liquid or whatever. I just mean that TikTok itself can't be trusted because it's selling your information to the government of China. I recently read an article in the, in the New York Times on how in universities, cheating is, like, skyrocketing. Students are cheating on exams. I guess it all started during COVID. And there, there's all kinds of problems with, uh, with the LSAT, which is the, uh, the test that you have to take in order to get into a law program in Ontario because people are paying other students. I don't know how they do this, but they pay other people to take the LSAT for them. And people are finding it difficult to trust other people. There's, a, there's an erosion of trust in our society. And Jesus comes along and he says, you can trust the word of God. Finally, you have something. If you're not a Christian and you're, you're, you're feeding me when I say that you're struggling to trust, it's hard to, to trust anyone or anything in this world. Jesus comes to you and he says, there is something you can trust. You can trust God's word. You can finally have something that you can be certain. It checks out. It's, it's, it's straight. It's true. It's trustworthy. It's reliable. It's a guide that never steers you wrong. It is an infallible counselor that never gives you the wrong advice. You can put your trust in it. Other books can be without error, okay? You can get a phone book that has all the numbers correct, and so it is technically without error. But Jesus is saying that everything in the Word of God is trustworthy and true, and it will all come true if it's a prophecy, if it's a promise, if it's a threat. 
Everything the Bible says will come true. The Bible says Jesus is the Son of God. You're a skeptic and you're wondering, is it possible that there is some divine being that exists out there, outside of time, outside of space, and that divine being has created me and, 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 and wants to be in relationship with me? Is it actually possible that that's true? Well, Jesus said, I punched a hole in the, in the roof of the world. I climbed in and became a human being so that you could know that God is here and God wants a relationship with you and the Bible attests to that and the Bible is trustworthy and true so when it says Jesus is the son of God you can know Jesus is the son of God that this is not a story that came out of some human mind some some mythical uh, uh, literature from the past no 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 this is God's divine revelation of himself to us but you know what that also means hell is real Jesus didn't just teach that he was the son of God. He taught that he would come to judge the living and the dead. He says in Philippians chapter 2, well, it's, it's the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul, so it's Jesus. In Philippians chapter 2, it says that Jesus emptied himself of his prerogatives as God and came into this world and he died as a servant for you and me, paying the price for our sin on the cross. And in reward for that, it says, therefore God exalted him to the highest place, that at the name of Jesus every knee would bow, heaven above and on the earth beneath and in the waters below, and under the earth, sorry, not in the waters below, and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's the prophecy. One day, every human being will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Some of us will bow to him willingly. Some of us will be forced to bow. But it's going to happen because God's word, Jesus says it himself in John 15. He says, my word cannot be broken. Now here's what it means, guys. It means you got to believe all of it. If it's all his word, it's all trustworthy and true, you have to believe all of it. Just a couple weeks ago, I met a fine person who spoke to me after the service, and we got into a conversation about all kinds of stuff, and one of the things we talked about was the Bible. And this person said, well, I don't believe every part of the Bible. I said, well, I do. And she says, well, I can't do that. I said, why not? She says, well, well, there are some things in the Bible that I find distasteful. I said, well, how do you decide what things you're going to believe and what things you're not going to believe? And she says, well, I follow the ethic of Jesus. Jesus loved everybody. Jesus accepted everybody. Jesus cared for everybody. And so when the Bible loves and accepts and cares, I, I believe it. And when the Bible doesn't do that, then I reject it. And I said, there's only one problem with that. Jesus believed the whole Bible. And so if you want to follow Jesus' ethic, you have to believe the whole Bible. You can't ignore the things you don't like because Jesus believed it all. Listen, we always talk about, this is, Christians are always talking about, they want a personal relationship with God. We want a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Can I just tell you, if you don't believe that the whole Bible is God's word. You cannot have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Let me show you how this works. If I come to you and I say, you know, we're getting to know each other, 
And I say, you know, I love soccer, and I love reading, and I love steak. And you say, oh, I know, I, I, I'm sure you do love soccer, and I bet you like a good steak, but I can't see you as a reader, man. You're too hyper. You don't look like you could ever sit still. So I don't think you like to read. You know what I think you like to do? I think you like to cycle. I hate cycling, okay? Sorry to all you cyclists, but I can't stand it. But you say, but I, I think you like cycling, and I don't think you like reading. I, that doesn't fit my understanding of who you are. I, I'm going to say to you, man, you're not listening to me. You have to accept me as I reveal myself, as I disclose to you what I'm like. And the exact same thing is true with God. We can't tell God what he's like. He tells us what he's like. And because the definition of God is a being who is perfect and pure and holy and righteousness and justice and truth, you can trust what he is saying. Listen, in verse 19, what does Jesus say? He says, listen, if anyone sets aside one of the least of these commands... Those little strokes of a pen. Those little smallest letters. You don't like that part, so you put it aside. You do that, and he says, you will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. And every scholar says that Jesus is not saying that there is a hierarchy in heaven, and some are in the top part, and some are in the bottom part. This is a poetic way of saying, you will not be a part of the kingdom of heaven. Now, you might say, you're making a bad case, Van and Brink. How am I supposed to believe that all of this is supposed to be believable? It doesn't make sense to me. And besides, you just said at the beginning, none of us can follow this law, so why in the world would God give us a law we cannot follow? It doesn't make sense. Ah, okay, fair enough. You're right, it wouldn't make sense except for point three. You gotta have point three for it to make sense. And what's point three? God's word is all about Jesus. It's all about him. Verse 17 again, what does it say? Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but what? To fulfill them. I have come to fulfill them. What does that mean? Well, you've got to understand, the Bible is a story with a theme. And Jesus himself is the theme of the Bible. If you understand that, this will be helpful because you see, when you go to the Bible, many of you, I know this is what you do because I do it too, you crack the Bible for your devotions and you get like three verses on something and then you get a little story that somebody wrote and you go, okay, that was me reading the Bible for my devotions, fine. And then, you know, maybe you take a Bible study and you go through a whole letter uh, over a bunch of weeks with somebody and so you kind of understand a letter really good. But you read the Bible in chunks and in fits and starts. It's now March 5. Some of you said, for my New Year's resolution, I'm going to read the whole Bible in a year. And you started out great, but then you realized, Mama Mia, that makes, that's four chapters a day. And I'm not allowed to take any days off. And you lost out by like middle of January. Or maybe you lasted a little longer. You got to the middle of February, whatever. But you blew it. And you're not going to read the whole Bible this year again. So what do you do? You read it in chunks. And it's weird got all this pre-civilization stuff, Genesis 1 through 11. You're like, man, what's going on there? Prehistory stuff. Then you got all this really ancient history stuff, and then boom, you run into these weird laws about how you're supposed to 
dress and what kind of like what kind of thread you're allowed to use together or not and all this stuff and then you have these long histories and then bam you run into a bunch of poetry and then you get to this wisdom literature and proverbs it's got all these strange sayings right answer a fool according to his folly don't answer a cool fool according to his folly you're like which one is it i don't understand it goes on and on and on and it doesn't make sense to you you can't put it all together well this will help if you've ever watched a TV show that is really, really tightly, uh, tightly scripted so that every episode is super duper important um, because the, the, it's got a very complicated storyline. And then I know this doesn't happen anymore because you can binge everything, but, but there was a time where like you could only watch this show on Wednesday night at 8 o'clock. And you'd go and make sure you were home to watch that show Monday, Wednesday night at 8 o'clock. But if you missed a week, all of a sudden there's all these changes. You don't understand what's going on. Because there's an important element to the story that you need to know. And here's the important element of the story you need to know about the Bible. It's all about Jesus. He's the theme. He's laid out right there in Genesis chapter 3. God says to the serpent... One day, the seed of the woman is going to come, and he is going to smash your head, and you're going to try to bite his heel. And that sounds cryptic and strange, but, but the whole Old Testament is preparing for this coming of Jesus. And when he does come, the whole New Testament points back to what he did and why he did it. Jesus describes it himself in Luke 24. He's on this road with these guys after his resurrection. They don't know who he is. They're trying to understand what happened. Jesus said, hey, give me a Bible. And they go, okay. And they pulled out their pocket Bible. I don't know how that worked, I'll be honest. But uh, he, he says, look, this is all about Jesus, and that's all about Jesus, that's all about Jesus. They're like, whoa, that's wild. And then they go to have something to eat together, and Jesus all of a sudden disappears, and it's only then that they realize they were talking to Jesus. And what do they say? How our hearts burned within us you know what they're saying he was showing us himself in the bible and our affections were being lit on fire with love because we were finally beginning to understand so that's what it means that jesus came to fulfill the the word but it also means that that he kept it. And what do I mean by that? Well, Jesus kept the law perfectly. He never deviated from it. He never disobeyed, never blew it once. He fulfilled the law through his obedience. But he also fulfilled all the other things that were part of the law through his obedience. You know, the, the, the whole, uh, I can't tell you all about this like in depth right now, so you just have to read the book of Hebrews, then you'll understand much better. But Jesus the temple system in the Old Testament pointed to Jesus. What's the temple? The temple is the place where you meet with God. How do we have, how do we have connection with God? In the Old Testament, it was through the temple. Jesus is the true temple. What about the altar? The altar was the place of sacrifice. Well, Jesus is the place of sacrifice because we read that, that he took our sin on himself and therefore he is also the entire sacrificial system completed and fulfilled in him. Jesus is the lamb, the true lamb. John the Baptist, he sees Jesus when he first meets him and he says, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Hebrews says that Jesus is the priest. What is a priest? A priest mediates our relationship with God. He gets us to God. Well, 
What does Jesus do? He is our intercessor at the right hand of the Father right now. Jesus fulfilled the entire Old Testament. He is the true and better Abel. He is the true and better Jacob. He is the true and better David. He is the true and better Daniel. He is the true and better. He is it, people. He fulfilled the entire Old Testament story and he fulfilled the entire Old Testament law in his obedience, but he also fulfilled it in his death. There's two ways you can fulfill a law, right? You can obey it or you can pay it. You get, you, you get on the highway and it says speed limit, 100 kilometers an hour, and you can obey that law and therefore you fulfilled that law, or you can get caught for speeding and you pay your fine and you fulfilled that law. Either way, you fulfilled the law. Well, the Bible tells us that we cannot fulfill God's law because our sin, our failure to live up to it is not just a small fine. It is an infinite fine because it is a, a, a fine against it is a debt that we owe an infinite God. And so Jesus comes along and when he came into this world, he lived the life that you and I could not live. And then he died this death in our place that we could not have died, otherwise we'd be dead. And Jesus didn't want us to be dead. So he died and he paid that penalty for us so that when you embrace him by faith and you say you are the son of God and you did live for me and you did die for me and I give myself to you and I repent of my sins, I turn my back on my self-will and now I'm going to live your way. You're restored. Because Jesus is verse 20. You get it? I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus did it for us. So we now have a righteousness that surpasses that of the Pharisees. And you know what that means? Oh, I gotta hurry up. It means Jesus takes the, more, takes the law more seriously than even the Pharisees did. Because he knew he had to fulfill it for us. The Pharisees were dumb enough to think that by their somehow, by their external obedience to this law, and we'll talk more about what that looks like next week, but, but by their external obedience to this law, somehow they were able to keep it. And Jesus knew, no, no, no. It goes much, much deeper than that. Because you see, the law is a reflection of a life fully lived under the, the glorious rule of our God. God gave us the law to show us what human flourishing would look like. And so it needed to be fulfilled. If Jesus had abolished it, we could never have had the fulfilling, uh, flourishing life. But he obeyed and he paid. Remember at the beginning I said God does not grade on a curve? Do you guys know what a curve buster is? You're in a class and there's 15 of you and you're all kind of on the same level and then in walks him or her. That student that everybody knows, they're way smarter than everybody else and they work way harder than everybody else and they're going to blow this curve out of the water because they're going to do way, way better than the rest of us and so the teacher, once the marks are all in, the teacher can't grade on a curve because if they do, this person gets 140%. Well, friends, Jesus is the ultimate curve buster. He, his righteousness surpassed that of the Pharisees. 
and thank God he did. Because you see, when you put your trust in him, and then you read 17 to 20, right? Without Jesus, you read 17 to 20, and you're like, I am dead meat. And you will either hate God, because you'll be like, you're unfair, this is way too hard, you have no right to put this on me, come on. Or you'll hate yourself. Because you'll know you're too weak, you'll know that you, you don't deserve to be in relationship with God. You don't deserve to be part of the kingdom of God because you are a failure. And so, on the one hand, you're saying, and on the other hand, you're saying, I'm garbage. But then you look at Jesus. You look at Jesus, the curve buster, who did it all, who obeyed and paid, and there was nothing left for you to do so that you can now look on the Sermon on the Mount and it's changed for you. It's not crushing you anymore. It's not a standard that, that pulverizes you. It's not like God and Jesus are putting his foot on your chest and pressing you down and saying, come on, you got to do it. And you feel the weight of it and you feel your ribs cracking under it because you know you cannot do it. No, you look at the Sermon on the Mount and you say, this is a picture of my Jesus, my Savior my guide, and I'm going to pursue these things because I love him who loved me first. And I'm going to strive for this because I know that this is the flourishing life because my Jesus told me so and I can trust his word. Pray with me, please. Father, thank you, thank you, thank you that Jesus came as the curve buster <laughs> who fulfilled the law for us and gives it to us as a guide for living, not as a, a burden to carry. Help us long and desire to follow him in obedience, to say no to sin, to say yes to righteousness, not to get anything from you, but because we've already received everything we could ever need by your grace. And do that, we pray, Lord, so that people will see how beautiful Jesus is. Not how holy and good we are, but how wonderful he is. In your son's precious name we pray. Amen. All right, so if you are in grade five or six, off to sermon breakout you go, if you want. If you're a guest and your kids in grade five and six, we have this little thing for the rest of the service. After the sermon, your kids go down to the uh, safe families room and with their leader, they talk a little bit more about the sermon. They get a snack and help kind of apply it to their lives as well, and the food is super good. Um, questions, yes. So we, uh, we take time for questions after the message occasionally when there is time, and we have a bit of time uh, this morning, and since there is a question, I feel uh, compelled to try to answer it. And I, I haven't read this first, so I'm just going to read it, and then we'll all discover what I'm being asked at the same time. Very, very risky. 
Are we still believing every stroke or letter of the Bible if we don't see every passage or story literally? For example, we might agree that God is the creator as seen in Genesis 1, but maybe that it wasn't done in seven literal days. Does this go against what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 17 and 18? Great question. Absolutely not. Um, well, did I just say the opposite of what I should have said? Um, no, you are, yes, absolutely, you can still be believing the entire Word of God, even if you're not um, uh, believing absolutely everything literally. Now, I say that broadly, but there are what we call principles of hermeneutics, or principles of interpretation that we use to understand what parts of the Bible are meant to be understood literally, what parts of the Bible are meant to be understood figuratively. I'll give you a simple illustration of that. In Exodus, it says that God rescued the Israelites out of Pharaoh's hand with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. God is a spirit. He doesn't have a body. Therefore, Mighty hand and outstretched arm is poetic language to describe the way that God delivered his people out of slavery in Egypt. And there are many places like that. Much of the Psalms are meant to be taken poetically, etc. Now, yes, you get into arguments with people over whether Genesis 1 is meant to be taken as literal history or not. And that can be uh, divisive at times, but... In our tradition, in the Reformed tradition, there has always been room for different types of interpretations on uh, the origin story as described in Genesis 1, and therefore, we would say you're not out of line with Scripture's teaching if you choose to believe that God created in six literal 24-hour days, or if He created in uh, over a longer period of time and you read Genesis 1 to be a more poetic thing. Both of those views are considered uh, acceptable ways of interpreting the Bible. And you say to yourself, well, can we do that with everything? No, you can't do that with everything, okay? There are, like I said, interpretive principles that guide how we're supposed to make these distinctions. And if you want to know what those are, take Mark's class on how to interpret the Bible for yourself, which you could have taken last fall but didn't, and now you feel like you missed it, and you did, but it'll come up again, and I encourage you to take it because it'll be very helpful in answering those questions like, how do I understand this passage? Is it meant to be taken as a literal historical fact, or is it meant to be taken more poetically? Any other questions? That was a great question. Thank you.